Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens and if you've not heard this podcast before, this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They can choose four things that they cherish, but they must also pick one thing that they would like to be rid of, something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is a stand-up comedian, writer, podcaster and sports presenter, but primarily Crystal Palace fan, Kevin Day, who was one of the frontrunners in the alternative comedy scene of the late 1980s. This led him to host the comedy discussion programme, Loose Talk, and the Channel 5 sports programme, Live and Dangerous. He played Gary Mills in the TV comedy Broken News, is a regular on Gabby Logan's BBC Radio 5 live show, and is often seen on Match of the Day too. Kevin has written for many shows and performers, including Dave Allen, Joe Brand, The 11 O'Clock Show, and Have I Got News For You, writing for the guest hosts each week. In fact, he's now a programme associate of the show. Kevin is famously a lifelong supporter of Crystal Palace Football Club and does a regular podcast about the club. He helped the Supporters Trust when the club was close to extinction in the late 1990s. He even held his wedding reception at the banqueting suite at the ground. So, let's find out what Kevin Day would like to put in his time capsule. And, I'm pretty certain, lots of other things. Yeah, it's not even the money, is it? It really is the activity, the doing it. It is, it's, it's doing it, and it's, it's just mixing with other... I, I never thought I'd miss sitting in the Soho Theatre so much, just talking bollocks. <laughs> I never thought I'd miss criticising other comedians as much as I do. It's just, it's just strange, and it's, it's, it's a little bit... It's like Ali says, it's like having a really nice car and just not being able to drive it. 
Mm. Yeah, but then you don't want to sound too self-indulgent because you think, well, you know, ninety-nine percent of the population in the world have got it worse than we have. But then you go, well, no, fuck it, I want to moan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to set up a therapy group when it's all done and get a lot of comedians, particularly stand-up comedians, together and just sit them in an audience so they can say, yeah, it's a reasonable gag, but I would have done it the other way around. <laughs> Well, because they normally say that with their face, don't they? Which is why <laughs> comedians are the, the worst audience. I can't remember who it was one night at the comedy store and somebody said, there's an act on stage fairly new to the comedy store. And someone said, well, they must be doing well because all the other comedians have come out of the dressing room to watch them. I went, no, that's the worst possible sign. <laughs> if the other comedians have come out to watch them because they sent blood. <laughs> I watched comedians stony-faced. And then afterwards, they'll say, that was fucking brilliant. And they'll say, you didn't crack a smile. I said, well, no, because you are. You're constantly thinking about what you would have done and second-guessing the punchlines. Yeah. Comedians are a terrible audience for comedy. Yeah, I do it with acting. I do it in the sense that I watch people do really beautiful, moving scenes and afterwards say, mm. they're fantastic the way you took those glasses off. They look so natural. <laughs> <isn't it?" laughs> such, such a small gesture, yet so important. Yeah. Just at the right yeah. moment. Brilliant. Mm. Because I know he would have worked that out. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Anyway, so we, shall, we, shall we do this? Let's knock on with it. Let's go. So how lovely to have you on my time capsule. Uh, how lovely to uh, be in your time capsule, Michael. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a sentence I thought I'd ever get to use. But yes, it is nice to see. It's. I think until a year ago, I think I'd probably done two things on Zoom in my entire life. Uh, and I'll be glad never to do any again after this, but <laughs> it has been a lifeline. It is genuinely nice to see people's face. It doesn't quite make up for being in a tiny bar in Edinburgh talking nonsense no. until the wee small hours, but it, to see other people from from your own <laughs> industries every now and again, it is lovely. And, and also because I've got, when we moved into this house years ago, we just had enough money to turn the garage into a workroom, which is great, but it means I have to walk three yards from the kitchen to the workroom <laughs> and it feels like it does feel like going to work it's really kept me going in the last year see you later darling I'm off to work <laughs> yeah, basically yeah. yeah see you in eight minutes <laughs> I can see you from the kitchen window <laughs> <laughs> well yeah that's the other problem as well because the cat just gets really upset when I come in here <laughs> I close the doors it's quite actually, and so every now and again you will hear a noise and you'll, you'll look up and you'll see this little furry black and white face leaping over the window to see where daddy is and why, <laughs> why he's not making a fuss of us now yes that's an insight into the life of a hard-bitten cynical left-wing comedian that people don't need to <laughs> don't need to hear <laughs> I know concerned about the cat yes he wants to bring down the government and he loves cats that can't be right <laughs> Well, that makes it uh, all the more interesting to find out what things from your life you're going to put into a time capsule. You know what, Mike? This is a really interesting... When you ask me to do this, it's a really interesting thing to do. Is I'm not... Except when it comes to football, I'm not by nature nostalgic. I'm not one of those people who thinks everything was better back then. I think, in general, life is better now, to be perfectly honest. And when people say, when were you happiest, I like to think that that might be next week or next year that I'll be happy. So... And also, I didn't want to be one of those people who says, well, I'll tell you what, my first item, Michael, is my BAFTA nomination. Let's put that so, so Which one would you pick? Exactly. Now, in a very clever way, I've let people know that I've been nominated for a BAFTA, but I'm too modest to include it in the thing. But How many did you win, just to bring it down again? It's, it's not about the winning, Michael, is it? <laughs> let's, let's, let's face it. I'm saying as I'm looking over your shoulder, I can see your gold disc. So, so, so it's a little bit about the winning. Um, I'm not by nature nostalgic, but I've got to my amazement, my bemusement, I've got a big birthday coming up, uh, which which I'm... It's going to involve a three 
travel card, which mm. Ali, my wife, who you know, is delighted about. Any saving we can make at this time, she but I'm I'm just horrified. I don't want people to see that I'm I'm getting into railway stations for nothing. <laughs> it's not an age I ever expected to be, but it but it has meant that recently in the last few weeks I have been thinking about the past. You you kind of naturally do when you come up to big milestones and and in particular, I've been thinking about my past before I became a comedian. Oh. So my first item in my time capsule is, is a, a double-breasted shirt from back in my new romantic days. In particular, it's debut at an office Christmas parties. I The only thing I was interested in at school really was history. I love history. I'm still obsessed with history. I love English. But back in those days, a love of those things didn't equip you for anything else other than teaching history or English. I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. I ended up going to university uh, a year later than I planned because my then girlfriend was was ill, so I didn't go to university to, to study history. I ended up going to Reading University to study archaeology. Mm. Um, but I got kicked out after three months for a lot of reasons, mainly because I was furious as I didn't get a trowel on my first day, to be <laughs> honest. I was really upset there was no trowel on the first day. But, but having that year off meant that I, even though I looked 12 back then, I was a bit cocky. I was, I was a year older than the other students. I'd worked, I had a bit of money, I had a bit of experience in life. And then on the second night there, I went to this freshers' party and just fell head over heels with this mature student who was a, a farmer's daughter who just... So basically, I spent my three months at university, I spent being taught more about life by a farmer's daughter, essentially. <laughs> and and I, I, was, I was required to leave... You know, I was thrown out of university, to be honest. They said, put your trousers on and get out. It's pretty much that. It was a knock on the door. It's like, take the Joy Division off the turntable, <laughs> put your trousers on, stop being moody, off you go. And then I got a, a job in the short term as a builder, which, ironically, I got a trial on my first day. <laughs> but I drifted around doing all sorts of things, and I'd broken my mother's heart because I was the first one in my huge extended Irish family to go to university. Mm-hmm. And I tried to console her that I was, you know, being the first one to be thrown out as well, Mum. That's not a bad thing, but she wouldn't, <laughs> she wouldn't have it. But I ended up getting a job as a clerical officer in the London Ambulance Service, and I was there for seven years, and I absolutely loved it. I really loved that job, and, and I started to become a comedian like three and a half years in, and it was it was quite a difficult decision for me to leave because by the time I left the ambulance service, I was a, a senior officer. I was in charge of recruitment, and then. Uh, industrial relations and all sorts of stuff. And I loved it. And I hadn't thought about it for for 30 years. I left in 1988 and I hadn't thought, until you asked me to do this, I hadn't thought about that time in my life at all. And it, it just, it had gone completely. It, mm. It's like, like my life started when I did my first open spot and I became a, a comedian. And I I realised I was really happy at that time and I really enjoyed it. And in particular... And Christmas will become a theme. And by the way, you'll have to get, I'm sorry about this. Ali, the last thing Ali said to me was, can you let Michael get a word in? It's his pod. <laughs> I, I do I do realise that I tend to answer about 15 questions at the same time. But there was this thing about, and I still have this thing about Christmas parties. I still get, if I'm on a train at Christmas going into town and I see people dressed up for their work's Christmas parties, I still get really quite emotional because it used to I used to love the fact that I worked in the London Amp Service headquarters it was part uniform and part mix so there was these people that I had to call sir or ma'am or Mr so-and-so and and when I was became a boss I became Mr so-and-so but obviously I was one of those bosses no call me Kevin that's fine (laughs) call me Kevin 
But I just used to love, I used to get so excited around Christmas time when you'd see these people who you'd only ever seen in uniform, you'd see these people suddenly, shyly turn up in the canteen, which had been turned into Santa's Grotto <laughs> for the purpose. I remember the first Christmas party and I turned up and I had my, I loved this double-breasted shirt. <laughs> I was a handsome, skinny lad in those days. Happy days. It's heartbreaking. And, and I, I like to think, in accordance with my optimism about the future, I like to think that I may be a handsome, skinny lad once more. Yeah, yeah. But I, I just remember turning up and I had this beautiful double-breasted shirt. I remember the, the, all these people going, oh, my God, look at Kevin. <laughs> and at the same time, I'm going, oh, look at you and look at them. And, and it's, it was a wonderful... It's hard to, I, I can't really explain why it's so important to me, but these were really, really happy memories. I used to mm-hmm. look forward, to, I think I did six Christmas parties. So I was I was turning up at these Christmas parties looking fantastic and just really enjoying seeing people looking fantastic. And it led me to start thinking. I, I dug out an old photo of the people in my particular group in the office and it led me to remember how much I liked them at the time mm. and how proud I was of doing a job in public service because I felt that I was doing a job in public service. I think you know, I was, I wasn't in uniform, but I was helping in a bizarre way as an administrative staff to help people who are doing a good job. It reminded me that I was alive, that I did exist mm-hmm. because everybody relates to me as in some way, either as a comedian or a writer or a football pundit. It's like, I never get the chance really to, to explain to people that I was a human being, a civilian, <laughs> yeah, as, which is how I got a muggle. Yeah. And of course, my closest friends outside show business, my closest friends are people that I was at school with. And I, I have got no contact with anybody from that seven-year period when you were really close to someone. Mm. And I really regret that I have no contact to the extent that I'm, I'm now wondering if I could get in touch with any of them or whether that would be a good idea yeah. or whether they would... I'm worried that people go, you were the worst boss I've had. You were a- <laughs> but you're right, it is a very good thing to be able to say to people, look, you may not be able to comprehend what it's like to be in showbiz, but I can understand what it's like to just do a normal job. Well, I, I used to get quite cross. Sean Hughes, God rest his soul, was a classic example. Sean was a great comedian, but it used to drive me up the wall because Sean was a classic example of a comic who had never done anything else. Mm-hmm. He'd never worked. Uh, and uh, I always said you could tell the difference between a comic who had a, a past, a background, and a comic who hadn't. Comedians who had no previous life, who hadn't worked, I always thought there was a certain arrogance about them. Not just on stage, but to the public. And even now, like, I've just used the word civilians and muggles about non-performers, yeah, yeah. which indicates a certain arrogance. But I always thought there was a slight contempt, whereas people like me who had that experience of earning not very much money, Mm -hmm. but enough to go out on a Friday and Saturday night and be really excited about going to comedy or to see a band or to see a live show because it was, it was brilliant. It was something you'd look forward to. Whereas comics who hadn't experienced that didn't realize quite how much the audience wanted us to make them laugh and Mm -hmm. didn't want us to go along the front row picking on them asking them where they got that jumper and were they in a boy band and didn't they have to be up at... So it's like, to say, don't, don't do that. You're paid to make them laugh. You're not paid to take the piss out of them. They get enough of that in their normal day-to-day life. So it's been a really pleasant thing for me to do, to look back on that. On that. And I, I still remember, I remember being in the toilet at, at work just before Christmas party, looking at myself in this double-breasted shirt, and thinking, knowing that nobody else would be 
strutting out in a double breasted <laughs> shirt. And it, it's an interesting thing as well, because I always say I've got no ego, which is nonsense. Cause, mm. cause I, but I must have had an ego at the time. But I remember thinking I've got to time my entrance into the <laughs> canteen to make sure everybody looks around. And you know, I've got to wait for the certain sort of music to come strutting in. <laughs> and and it's, been, it's been really nice to remember, because I don't... I very rarely think about my childhood much because I wasn't my, I hated grammar school. I went to an Irish Catholic grammar school that thought it was a public school, basically. And my problem was I went to a brilliant primary school. I loved my primary school. I went to a bog standard South London primary school, but the headmaster was still one of the most inspirational people in my life. Mm. He looked like he'd stepped out of Pickwick papers, this big avuncular Welshman. But uh, this was in the late 60s, and he had this attitude that, women, girls, should be treated exactly the same way as boys, should have the same level of opportunity, that he should be pushing the girls to get to university. And he thrummed this into us, that it might be a South London primary school, but you have got every right to do as much in life as anybody else has. He loved me because my dad taught me to read when I was four because he said, and I quote, it might come in handy. (laughs) My dad was a proper South London trade union man, still is. And he taught me to read, and reading's been my big passion for him. And I thought my headmaster loved me because I, at the age of seven, I had a read at the age of 14. And he was just brilliant. And he would, one of the reasons I love Christmas so much is that one Christmas, we were about seven or eight. And it literally, it was like Fezziwig in Christmas Carol. He came around in each classroom and he said, Right, it's Christmas, no more lessons. Dragged us all into the hall. We sat down and we all watched Newark on 34th Street. And this was amazing. And every now and again, it's like during the summer, he would came around once and said, oh, it's too hot for lessons. Come on, let's all go in the playground and play cricket. And it, he was, his name is Mr. Collins, and he's, he was the father of Pauline Collins, the actress, who at the time was, she was married to John Alderson, still is, I believe. They were very famous, upstairs, downstairs, Lisa. So, and one day this white Rolls Royce turned up and outstepped his daughter. And it was like the most exciting South, you know, you go to primary school. And, <laughs> and, and about 10 or 12 years ago, I was at a theatre, and I saw Pauline Collins and I thought, I, can't, I don't know her from Adam, but I'm going to have to say something to her. And I, I went up to Pauline Collins and I said, Look, excuse me, uh, Pauline, you, you don't know who I am. Uh, and as it turned out, she did. Uh-huh. Right? So, as part of the reason I tell that story, because I'm bigging myself up, that she did know. And I, I, You've not got an ego. And I, <laughs> but anyways, I said to Pauline Collins, like, I just have to tell you that your dad even now, is the most remarkable person, most remarkable inspiration. And she said, not a week goes by without somebody coming up to her and, and talking about her dad and what he meant. But That's brilliant. The trouble is he created such a protective, nurturing environment that when I went to this all-boys Catholic grammar school, it was a nightmare because it was the opposite. Mm. Whatever the opposite of nurturing and caring was, this grammar school was, and and young people. Like, so when I talked to Ed and his mates about the random violence from teachers, yeah, Ed still doesn't believe this. The last day of fifth form, there's a teacher that I really got on well with. He was very left wing, very political. One of the people who introduced me to left wing politics, uh, along with some friends of mine, they saved me. You probably know about my background in the National Front before that, but they saved me from that. Mm-hmm. But on the last day of fifth form, uh, I was sitting. I was leaning back in the chair and this teacher, he walked up and he punched me off my chair, fully punched me off the chair. And I said to him, what the fuck did you do that for? He said, because I've been looking at your insolent grin for the last five years and we're not allowed to hit you in sixth form. So I went home and I was furious. I went home and I said to my dad, you won't believe what happened. And I told him, he went, well, yeah, that grin of yours is really annoying, 
<laughs> oh, no. I don't know if anyone's. It's like it's no no bother at all. Said, of course, you upset a teacher. You got hit by a teacher. So my secondary school sixth form was all right, but I hated second. I couldn't stand secondary school, which is why I tend not to look back too much to my childhood. Which is a shame, isn't it? When it starts so well, well that's it. when you start with that teacher. I mean, what a great skill because you did say earlier on that teacher loved me, and I bet you there are whole classes where everybody thought he really loved them. That's the great skill. That's what I felt because I felt that he loved me. I felt particularly nurtured, and and that's, it's really interesting. I've never, it's never occurred to me, Michael, to ask whether other kids felt the same way. I have a feeling they probably, maybe they didn't, or maybe they still, maybe they still don't. Maybe they did at the time, and maybe they still, they still don't. Because it was, if if you remember, Miles, it, it was a time when. I mean, most of the teachers were were women. There was a couple of male teachers who were ex-military, mm-hmm. who kind of took. But there's, but the, the, his kindness permeated the whole school. But it did, it did backfire, which is why. So I I stopped thinking about my childhood from the age of eleven onwards. So bearing in mind, this is the first time in my life that I thought about my time at work. That's a that's a fourteen year gap that I've, I haven't really given any attention to for for most of the rest of my life, which... Uh, well, I'm delighted that I've inspired you to do it. Well, I know. I've actually got myself worried now. I'm just wondering what a psychologist would make of that 14-year <laughs> gap. So I'm, I'm worried now that if I talk to my mates who I went to grammar school with, who I was still my best friend, I sat next to him on my first day at primary school, and I'm I'm actually really worried that if I, off the back of this, I say to him, I, I did this really nice pod with this really nice chap, and this is what I said, I'm worried that he's going to say, that's bollocks. None of, none of that happened. He it was, was a, brilliant, that, he was that brilliant. secondary school. Yeah. And all the and teachers it, were lovely. I've always claimed that the reason I support Crystal Palace is that on my first day at primary school, and I know this is true, it's my, my first day at primary school, I know I cried my eyes out because I was sat next to Steve and he was a good foot taller than me and I thought, they've put me in the wrong class. They've put me in a class with older kids. <laughs> and, I was, and I cried my eyes out and I've, I've got this memory of him putting his arm around me and comforting me. And he had this jumper that his mum knitted in the palace kit colour. This is way before replica kits, but he had this jumper, claret and light blue jumper that his mum knitted. And I just thought this was brilliant. And I asked him what it was and he told me. And I was a Palace fan ever since. When I wrote my book recently about football, I just got my mates together and discussed memory. For the love of God, please don't put that in the book. He said, because none of that happened. <laughs> you know that. I said, Steve, it's, it's the happiest. It's, it's one of my seminal memories, he said, he said, when was the last time I touched you? And it's like, fair point, he's never put, he's very undemonstrative. He's never put, he was best man at my wedding, I was best man at his, and we had the most like half-hearted hug then. So he's not, <laughs> I'm the hugger. He's like, he's there. And he went, my mum can't knit. Uh, she still can't knit. And I'm going, oh, don't. And already, I've just realised that's the third time. You've questioned your own memory. I'm not worried that I was a horrible boss, <laughs> that, that my old headmaster was a terrible And then did a PhD. It's all lies. Yes. Not only did I do a degree at Cambridge, I did my PhD at Oxford. <laughs> Wouldn't that be interesting if it turned out that missing three years that I put down to alcohol, I was actually doing a degree at Cambridge. <laughs> well, um, I'm going to put that double-breasted shirt on a very slim you, <laughs> and I'm going to have you strutting into the Christmas party. All right, Kevin, we're going to move on to item number two. It's um, it's the poster for my first full Edinburgh show, mm. which was called The Day Trip, which happened in 1991. I, I left the ambulance service and I became a full-time comedian. And then three years later, I couldn't, I couldn't believe my luck <laughs> that in the space of three years, I was in Edinburgh 
doing this and and still for me if if there is a heaven and I do believe there is actually if there is a heaven for me it will be it will be the pleasant's courtyard on a a sunny evening surrounded by comics and actors and people you know just chewing the cud talking about shows that you've seen talking about things that you've loved and enjoyed and when I say I couldn't believe my luck I don't say that lightly because I suffered and still do from imposter syndrome I still thought at the time well, enjoy this while it's happening because they'll see through you eventually. They'll realise that you've got this far on a bit of talent and a bit of cocky charm and mainly luck. And I I did my first full-length, the first hour, I came off stage, there were six people in the audience, three of whom, it turned out, were reviewers. So within a week, I'd got these reviews and I was getting people in. And it was the first time I suddenly thought, you know what, I might... I might be able to do this. And I suddenly, and I never, I still don't feel I belong, to be perfectly honest. I know that's a strange thing to say 35 years old. I still have this slight imposter syndrome, um, which it may be to do with class. I don't, I don't know. Do you think it's maybe possibly to do with the fact that also that you worked before you did it? It might be that. It might be just innate insecurity, which I got from my mum. My mum was an Irish Catholic who suffered very badly from depression, which I, she was the best mama you could have for for six months of the year. For the other six months, she was either in hospital or she was, she'd locked herself in a room. But as a kid, you grow up with this, you take to their, the enormous credit of my mum and dad, who I love dearly, but to their enormous credit, I was about 14 before my dad said that postnatal depression was one of the big causes. She suffered from depression before I was born. And I, twice I was on the verge of being taken into care and my dad barricaded the door to stop them. I, they, they didn't tell me this when I was young. And as, and as a kid, you just think it's perfectly normal. My mum was brilliant. She was funny. She was clever. She was feisty, but she just wasn't, she wasn't always there. Mm. But as a kid, I didn't know I was dealing, what I was dealing with. It's just that was your mum. It's just that when she was there, she was brilliant. And when she wasn't there, my dad was brilliant. It's, it's simple as that. But I, there's an element of insecurity. She was always... If if I took them out to a restaurant for an animal, she would just she would order the cheapest thing on the menu and just close her eyes and hope that the whole thing was over as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Whereas my dad would say, "Are you paying for this?" I'd say, "Yeah," and he would go for the the, the lot basically. <laughs> and also, when I first started doing comedy, and this wasn't anything to do with chippiness, it's just that when I first started doing comedy, I used to watch comedy and I I just assumed that you had to have a theatrical background or you had to have been to university before you got into it. It didn't occur to me that there were other ways in that you could just ask for an open spot. And eventually the reason I did an open spot was because my mates got so fed up with me sitting there going, we paid a fiver for this. <laughs> and so I find myself in Edinburgh and there's a poster with me, just just my face on it. It was called The Day Trip and because my clever plan was that the next one would be called The Day Return. <laughs> and then I ran, out of, I ran out of day puns, unfortunately. So that <laughs> this was a time, this was just before comedy was the new rock and roll. So it's still still slightly underground. It was still slightly fringy. And I was just so, so excited. Having said that, I'm not nostalgic. This was a t- I know this was a time in my life that I was most excited because after a lot of shilly-shallying and, frankly, poor behaviour on my part, Ali and I had, had got together. When, when Ali first met me, she said I thought I was an arrogant dick, basically. <laughs> uh, so it took some time, and I, I didn't realise this. I thought, like every woman, she was just completely bowled over by my charm. And your double-breasted shirt. And by my double-breasted shirt. But, so suddenly I found myself in Edinburgh in the company of people that I'd admired and respected being treated like an... And then 
it was the same time that Mark Thomas and I got together. Mark and I started comedy within a week of each other at the same venue, the Meccano Club, hosted by a guy called Jim Miller, James Macabre, God rest his soul. The front cover of Time Out had just had a picture of the three of us on it with the headline, The Third Wave of Alternative Comedy, oh. which Mark's forgotten. Mark's forgotten there are two other people on that front cover, <laughs> basically. God love him. So Mark and I had got together. We'd just started doing Loose Talk on Radio 1, which was Radio 1's first ever comedy show, and it was getting a lot of attention. It was a brilliant show to do, and comedy was it hadn't yet become the corporate behemoth that it became between sort of 96 and 2006 and thank god it's gone full circle now but it was really exciting and then a couple of years later mark and i were touring together i remember mark and i finished our tour we did this thing together at the bloomsbury theater we did three nights at bloomsbury theater sold out and the last night was just like the perfect gig mm. but for me mark and he, he doesn't disagree with this is the best comic that we produced if you still want to use the word alternative comedy for me mark thomas was untouchable for three years he was the he was just a force of nature he used to drive me up the fucking wall because he just used to get so enthusiastic about things that he would phone me up and say i've just bought this japanese belgian fusion jazz album you've got to listen to it and and i'm like you know don't please don't do this to me and he would put the album on and he would leave the phone off the hook and he would disappear (laughs) and he said i've just read this book by this american bloke he only writes things upside down you've got to read it it." and it's really interesting we both had children about the same time and by the age of five they were exactly the same mark's kid would just run in and go i've got this brilliant lego thing and my son would go let's just finish what we're doing first (laughs) But Mark was a force of nature on stage. He was, you couldn't follow him. He was unfollowable. Mm. And so working with Mark was just fantastic. So that time, and it, and it also was a time I learned the lesson. That I, I remember in Edinburgh, 92, 93, I, was, I did remember Late and Live, a blessed memory. For those people who aren't aware, who've never been to it, Late and Live was a show that used to start at one o'clock in the morning, go on until five o'clock. <laughs> uh, and half the audience were comedians, if they'd had a bad night, weren't in the mood, and half the audience were pissed up locals. And it was a very volatile environment. And all sorts of things happened there. I, I remember singing Love Will Tear Us Apart with Peter Hook playing the bass guitar. And all, but <laughs> before the band came on, you had two acts. And I remember one night, and this was where I, I felt the wind of change was coming. When I went on one night, I was the opening act, and I, was, I absolutely stormed. I was, stormed. I was brilliant. I stormed it. I was one of those gigs. I knew what I was doing. It was a venue I realised, and it just went really, really well. And Boofy Graffo was, was comparing. And I jokingly said to Boofy, good luck following that to whoever is on mm. next. Cut to the police were being called because people were laughing. And Lee Evans went on to follow oh, me. No. And it's like, literally, I thought, <laughs> I thought it's like going to be like the Bible. I thought people, they were going to have to take the roof off and lift people out of stretches. <laughs> but it, it taught me a valuable lesson as well, because I realised, because I thought, well, Christ, do I have to, to get that sort of re- reaction? Do I have to change what I do? And then there's several people came up to us and said, no, you were great, you were fine. And people who like you will always like you. So, and, of course, you came off stage knowing that you'd stormed it. So you did storm absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah I, I did storm it, yeah, but I wish I hadn't seen Hang Around to See Lee. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a period of time when I was just finding my feet as a comedian and just loving it. But also, after two or three years, realising that it probably was a period that was going to come to an end. Mm-hmm. And when Loose Talk went on to TV... The radio series was was produced by Amanda Yanucci. And when Loose Talk went on to TV, Mark didn't want to do it. And because Mark didn't want to do it, I wasn't keen to do it, but I was persuaded to do it. And it it, it was a disaster. It just didn't work on TV. Mm. So it was heavily underlined that sort of three, four-year period. 
but there's a time I look back on with such such excitement because it was so exciting to be a stand-up comedian then. Mm. Because I say it was still slightly underground. It, we had, you know, it was still something you had to look for alternative comedy, and, and there was a sense of, I'm, I'm not going to say camaraderie, but there was a sense of being in a gang. Like we're all, most of us were young. Yeah, people like Arnold, who was, I think, was born seventy-five yeah. to be fair. Arnold Brown, God Arthur bless Smith, him. I mean, Arthur Smith claims to be sixty-six now, but that can't possibly <laughs> be the case because he was clearly sixty-six the first time he compared me at a gig. <laughs> the one thing that was different about alternative comedy was that we wrote our own material, and that's why it so quickly became mainstream because there was there are plenty of observational comics in as well, and it's like. Alternative comedy as a concept lasted for about five years, and there was only sort of seven or eight of us that you would would fit into that label. People do look back at it now and go, "Oh, what a wonderful time that was! It was groundbreaking." It sort of it sort of was, but it was mainly white and male and and heterosexual. Yeah, true. But I mean, that's one of the brilliant things about comedy now. I'm as excited about live comedy now as I ever have mm. been. And the circuit until it was sadly, sadly curtailed, and I. They're the generation I feel most sorry for in this market. Obviously, I feel very sorry for myself because I'm a self-centred, ego-driven monster, as we know. <laughs> but for that generation of comics like Ed 24, 25, because a lot of the TV opportunities have disappeared because there's all sorts of stuff on Dave and Comedy Gold, but there's a very small gene pool of people that mm-hmm. they use on those shows. So people like Ed and his mates just are doing live comedy for the sake of live comedy, and there is a there's a brilliant brilliant generation of comics out there, but they're so different to us because they're a lot more working class for a start off. There's a whole range of sexual identities. There's a whole range of people across Asia, across Afro-Caribbean, but in a way that there simply wasn't. And it's 50-50 women. My mum didn't think women were funny. She thought that women should be allowed on stage when all the men had had a go, basically. Mm. She got thrown out of two comedy clubs. She heckled Mark Lamar off stage one night, which takes a lot of doing. <laughs> There's one memorable Edinburgh shoot. They were going to my dad and mum were going to Ireland via Stranra. And I said, well, Why don't you come for a night to the Edinburgh Festival on the way up? And she ended up, she drank Malcolm Hardy and Andy Linden under the oh table, my God. basically. Which I know, I know. And she, but she heckled Mark Lamar off, which I was quietly proud of because I think it's probably the only time it ever happened. But so alternative comedy is brilliant and I was proud to be part of it. But it wasn't this revolution. Nobody ever sat... People say to me, oh, what happened? How did you get involved in alternative comedy? I said, I didn't. <laughs> I, I got dared into doing an open spot. It went from there. I found myself doing something I loved. Nobody ever sat down and said, like, we need we need to change the world of comedy. We need a new approach. We've got to do something. Because what I keep reminding people is that all the time we were doing comedy, you still had Jimmy Cricket and Frank Carson and mm-hmm. Bernard Manning on telly. We didn't get rid of them. People like Benny Hill disappeared and I still my dad still blames me for that now because I I get slightly shamefaced because people say to me who were your influences as a kid and I say I didn't have any influences as a kid because I never wanted to be who who at the age of seven decides they want to be a comedian and watches comedy on tv for their influences no it was my mate at the back of the class well that was it every comic knows somebody who's funnier than them and 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 Dave Allen is a huge influence but in hindsight I say to people, yeah, of course I used to sit and watch Dave Allen and I used to love it. My mum hated him till she met him when he charmed her out of the Mm. tree. But I kind of make that up. But what I do remember is howling like a drain at Benny Hill (laughs) when I was eight or nine. And partly because my dad, because my dad loved Benny Hill so much. And of course, yeah, if your dad's laughing, you're going to laugh as well. And partly because it's, even now I look back on Benny Hill and I kind of go, 
he wasn't the problem, was he? I mean, Bernard Manning was the problem. Mm. So alternative comedy, it existed, and, and I'm proud to be part of it. And I've kind of helped mythologize it a little mm. bit, if you like. But I'm also aware that it was a brilliant time because we were young and I was doing something that I never thought for a minute I would ever do. But that Edinburgh, that Edinburgh poster reminds me of a brilliant time. And of course, it also helps, like I say, because I was settling down with Ali and Ali... She's been in, in comedy as long as I have. She was the first ever stage manager at the at the comedy store. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole generation of comics now who still... I remember uh, Mark Lamar was fantastic. I loved Mark Lamar, but I fully understand why some people were terrified of him. Uh, he, he could be difficult. He, he set very, very high standards for himself and he expected other people to meet them. And if they didn't... So working on Buscots was a very interesting experience because if, if he thought somebody hadn't put 100% into performing on the show or into writing for the show, he'd let them know. Often during the show? Very often during the show. I had a conversation with him once and said, Mark, if I was still at the ambulance service, there'd be some kind of grievance procedure (laughs) because of the way you treat people. And his answer was always, if they tell me to my face they're upset, I'll stop doing it. Mm. But until they tell me, because I compared his first ever open spot at the store, so I had a relationship with him. And Ali was the, the stage manager. So Ali, there's this, this two generations of comics who, who Ali sort of nurtured and grew up. And there was a night, Ali came to a show, a Buzzcocks recording. It had been a particularly tricky recording. It wasn't a good, particularly good show. And there was an air of tension in the green room afterwards. And Ali was there and she, and, and Mark came in and Mark had just done, he had his hair cut really short. And, and Ali went, <laughs> oh, Mark. And Mark gave him a big hug. And Ali went, what the fuck have you done to your hair? It was like in a Western when a stranger walks in, the whole room went quiet. <laughs> people started backing away. People were putting their drinks down and leaving because they knew what was coming. And Mark just went, yeah, it's too short, Ali, I know. And it's like, and everyone's like, oh, right, great. It's a strange thing to say and be proud of. I also, I never chatted anybody up in my life, which is true because I just talked to people. When I, but I, I had a lot of relationships and sometimes the, <laughs> there was a blurring between the lines of when one had ended and one hadn't. So Ali was very reluctant. But it's that classic thing. As soon as I met Ali, I knew I realised I would change my behaviour completely. So mm-hmm. this was a time when hopefully Ali was falling in love with me as much as I was already in love with her and still is. Even now, after all these years, <laughs> I'm still not quite convinced. Ali's got three toolkits. I can't use a screwdriver. So I'm the one who gets candles and Joe Malone stuff and lush stuff for Christmas and birthdays. Like if you give any, if you give Ali a candle for a birthday, you're going to get it back in a way that you don't want it. So Ali's, <laughs> Ali's the practical. I'm the demonstrative, lovey one in the relationship, and Ali's the practical one. And, and basically, as Ali put it, the fact that she's still here is her way of showing affection, essentially, which is great. Which I thank every day. But at the so at the time, I was I was I was madly in love with Ali, mm. and and she, it was somebody who understood what I did for a living as well, which was which was brilliant. And I was madly in love with comedy. So all these things were, were coming together. So that was a time in my life, if if ever I do get nostalgic, that's the time I go back to. Well, that poster's up on the wall in the time capsule to remind you yes. of it all. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you for moving me on. I realise, I could tell by the look on your face that I was, you were wondering when this was going. No, I'm very happy, Kev. This is absolutely fantastic. You always look happy, Mark. You've got that knack. <laughs> well, you have. You've got one of those attractive faces and that people have always, people, ah, Michael's here. That's a, oh, that's nice. It is. It's a lovely thing to have. And you're, you're, but then two minutes later, will he ever shut the fuck up? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, this is, Christ, it's supposed to be my pod. What's he doing? This man's in it. Will he not stop talking about how good he was in radioactive? It's like, <laughs> but it's slightly confusing because I, I see your brother more than I see you because obviously he's a yeah. Well, this will lead us on probably to our next item, but 
your brother Patrick, who looks very much like you, he has that same thing when you when you're in the back bar, the the Paulson's Arms before a Palace game, and Patrick comes in, you look up and go, ah. Patrick's here. That's nice. <laughs> of course, within two minutes of talking to Patrick, he's saying, for the love of God, can we talk about somebody other than my brother? He does constantly send me photographs of people that he's bumped into who've all walked up to him and said, you must be Mike's brother. Really? Yeah. And he... I don't see it. I don't see that you would immediately look at him and think of me. Siblings are a strange thing for me because I, I was an only child because my mum wasn't meant to have kids. She was, she was told not to have She was for both mental and physical reasons, but she... She always felt she was letting the Irish family down if she, 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 hmm. if she didn't have a kid, because one of her sisters has got 15 kids and it goes down. I've got 72 first cousins on it. So, so I don't know what it's like to be a sibling. I do. I always wanted a big sister to look after me and a little sister that I could spoil and then take exception if anybody tried to chat her up. I always wanted to be that sort of protective South London big brother. You know what I mean? Leave my princess alone. But, uh, <laughs> so anyway, yes, Patrick, I'm amazed that you can't see that he looks like you. I just see the differences, I suppose. Hmm. I've known him for so long. Maybe you were surrounded by sensible adults who realise that the worst thing you can say to two small children <laughs> is, don't you look like each other? No, I think the truth is, Kev, he's just slowly, slowly, slowly got better looking. <laughs> is that what it is? And now he looks like me. He's just grown slowly to look more like his brother. <laughs> Strangely enough, Kev, when I was first thinking of doing this podcast, I asked him if he would do it with me to try it out. It's a really good recording. That must have been a really interesting exercise, wasn't it? Yeah. This is a process of going through people's memories of stuff and how they remember it and what it means to them. So the important things to him, particularly mm. talking about our parents and our childhood... They're completely different from mine. I find it really interesting because my mum is one of 10 brothers and sisters. And my dad is one of five brothers and sisters. But both of them, the youngest sibling was a daughter mm. and both of them were born as an accident or an afterthought. So both of the, the youngest daughters, are one is eight years younger than the rest and one is 10 years younger than the rest. Mm. And their memories of growing up as, are different to the point of almost madness. Because <laughs> doing some research, it turns out by the time my dad's sister, Pat, who's still with us, by the time, of course, she was growing up, her older brothers, including my dad, were working. So there was a little bit more money around than there had been when my dad was a, a kid. So her memory is of a much more stable, happy childhood than my dad's was. You know, there used to be a running joke in my mum's family, first up, best dressed. She still gets quite cross with my dad now and vice versa. Because she doesn't like my dad implying that they were brought up in pot. They weren't. They were. It was. You know, they ate. And as, yeah. as it happened, my granddad, who I never met, died very young, was um, a chef, a pastry chef, and he was a pastry chef at the Kit Kat Club, which was quite famous at the time. So, as as Dad said, they ate a lot more than people in the street, but mainly meringues and donuts, essentially. <laughs> but he left school at the age of fifteen, and he went to work. And and but my auntie Pat doesn't like him telling people that because her memory is, is completely different. Yeah, yeah, completely different memory. For example, to go back to what you were talking about with your mother, my mother suffered from very bad postnatal depression after my younger brother was born, after Patrick was born. He doesn't remember it at all, of course. You know. Yeah, I mean, mum, my mum had shock treatment. A policeman turned up once at primary school to take me home because mum had been taken home in an ambulance and the ambulance driver wouldn't let her into an empty flat because she'd had shock treatment. So they, he called the police, police called the hospital, and the hospital said, well, her husband's working, we don't have no way of contacting him, but mm. this is the school her son goes to. The police turned up when I was seven or eight, took me in a police car, which is very exciting, but took me home so I could be in the flat. When my mum was put to bed 
that's how they treated it. There was it was like you either pulled yourself together or we're gonna give you shot treatment. And it's kind of that that it's only in the past couple of years I've really since mum died that I've really spoken to dad about. She left Ireland at the age of 14. Uh, and I I know something happened and she left with her elder sister, uh, Tessie. I know something went on. My dad's confirmed that something happened to my mum and he said, I can't tell you because it will make you too, it will make, so I, I suspect that there was some kind of abuse thing happened to her. And of course, as, as often happened in those days, it's the victim that was just shoved aside and, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, let's not make a fight. Or indeed, you might have to come to this country for an abortion. Again, I don't know. I don't know whether that was the case, but no, it's quite possible. And that would make mm-hmm. sense as to why she was told she couldn't have kids because that went wrong. I don't know. My dad is very protective of her memory. Good, right? But I said to dad recently, because I see him every second day. He's 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 brilliant, I and mean, he still lives in a flat. The flat's now looks like a gentleman's club now. It's all the <laughs> it's, it's got ship models all over the place and things he wasn't allowed to put up. You know what I mean? It's like, but he's great. And he's still, he's, he, look, he looks 20 years younger than he's, But I, I said to dad, was there ever a worry that mum would kill herself? He said, never. There's one thing I knew was that she, even in the midst of the darkest depression, and this is a woman who, he woke up one morning and she, the, she'd painted the entire flat black. Every single surface of the flat had, had been painted black, including my pram. He said, I knew she would never take her own life because she loved you too much. Uh, he adored you so much that she would, I knew there was never any doubt. That he said, I, I went to work in the morning knowing whatever state she'd be in. And again, I can't stress enough that for six months of the year, the state she'd be in when he came back was happy and smiling and swearing because she swore like a, a mm. trick. But, but he knew, he, he said, I never had any fear that she would take. And, and obviously, nor did I. I and, but the thing is that when you're six or seven, you know, you just, you're very resilient. You just think, well, there must be loads of kids who are having to sit on their mum's bed whilst steam comes out of their head. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, you just, mm. like, I, I had to do the shopping a lot of the time and you think, well, there must be, there's probably loads of seven year olds who are doing the shopping. You know, it's like, you just get on with it because you think that's what life is. It's only with hindsight you think, oh, it was a little bit different. Yeah, true. Well, you can see how skillful I am at moving things on. Okay? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> As we now move into the third item. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, but we'll be back with Kevin Day in next to no time. Obviously, not no time, otherwise this interruption would be extremely pointless. But the thing that's next to no time, which is almost certainly some time, but not too much time. See you in a minute. Well, it might be less than a minute. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back. Let's waste no more time, or next to no more time, and get straight back to Kevin Day and the third thing he'd like to put in his time capsule. Well, it's um, it's a goalkeeping glove given to me by ex-Palace goalkeeper Julian Speroni, because I couldn't... I apologise to people listening to this who are not interested in football, and I also feel very sorry for them. Because <laughs> for a start-off, what do you talk to strangers about at weddings? I, I genuinely had a nightmare scenario seven or eight years ago when a friend of mine got married... And he did that thing where he said, I'm not putting you with the friends. We're splitting everybody up. And I was at this table with strangers. So I sat down and said, what? What a stupid time to get married. Three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, expecting the response to go, yeah, I'm missing the game. And they all looked at me and went, why? Oh. But football, I, I couldn't talk about my life, my background without mentioning football because it's been such a huge, huge and important part of it. And I've mentioned the fact that I, I, I say I'm a Crystal Palace fan because of that sitting next to Steve at the age of five. I know I was taken to a Wimbledon game when I was four. I know because my uncle Bill, my dad's brother-in-law, took me to a Wimbledon game, which was um, an odd experience. Uncle Bill, you know, in those days, basically, you got taken places. And until you looked up, you didn't know which adult was taking you. (laughs) There's still a big discussion in my house that no one can really nail down the first Palace game I went to. As I think Steve's dad took me. My mum was convinced that Bill, the greengrocer, took me. And I still can't understand why the fuck Bill the Greengrocer would be taking me anywhere, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> My dad says that he took me, but they all agree that I was taken to see Wimbledon by Uncle Bill. And Uncle Bill was a strange one. He always claimed that his cousin was the craze backup getaway driver. <laughs> backup. <laughs> yeah, so if the real getaway driver was off sick, his cousin would do... They'd give him a call. Yeah, I think it meant he's... he's yeah, he probably picked the kids up from school. So, but, he, but he liked to think he was about... He was also a spiritualist medium. He ran a spiritualist church in in Rains Park. And I remember very clearly going to the spiritualist church as a, as a youngster and being fascinated by, they had a a, a surgery and this uh, Asclepius, who's one of the founders of, of medical history, the Roman guy would, would be channeled by my uncle Bill and people would come on a Friday morning and say, look, I've got a headache. And Bill would go, oh, Asclepius says, cut uh, the paracetamol. <laughs> Probably. So Ascubius, he'd kept up with all the modern advances in medicine then, obviously. The yeah, of course, well, of course. That's yeah. how, but Bill was totally, he was totally, there was no element of charlatan. He, he was totally, his integrity was 100%. But, and he was one of these self-taught people as well. He knew something about everything. Right? And then, and he was, which I liked, I loved that. But it was interesting to go out. And I loved him dearly, but it was, it was strange to go out <laughs> because he was prone to just sort of wandering off. He, he would stop. And he'd say, you, you okay, Uncle Bill? And he went, no, I was just talking to Dora. She's got a problem with Charles Dickens. It's like, right, okay, fine. <laughs> so family history is that I came back from this Wimbledon game singing one, two, one, two, three, bollocks to the referee. <laughs> and then my mum was so shocked and aghast by my behaviour that she said, he's never going to football again. 
which is just not true. As, as I alluded to before, my mum, as Barry Cryer once said, my mum swore like a docker's parrot. <laughs> my mum was, was a brilliant swearer and in both English and Irish, so she wouldn't have been bothered. She would have given me money if I came home <laughs> swearing. But I became a Palace fan as a, as a kid. and then I mean, not to say that they, they haven't been since, but they were a great team at that point. It kind of becomes immaterial in a way uh-huh. because it's... I really miss the ground, but I, what I miss most is the t- it's like when I see your brother, it's the two hours in the Paulson's mm. Arms, this tiny little pub that you can't find unless you know where it is. It's a Palace pub. It's owned by Palace. And it's the two hours before the game. It's the two hours afterwards doing what Ali describes as talking the same bollocks to the same people <laughs> in the same corner of the same pub for 30 years. That's what I love about it. That's what, and I've grown up with these people traveling the country with these people who now have got kids and grandkids of their own. And it's been, it's been a baseline to my life. And it's, it's, but it's also given me my identities. I, I grew up in, you can't point to where I grew up in a map. It's in South London. Mm -hmm. It's it's where there's a little bit where Streatham meets Mitchum and it meets Tooting, but there's nothing there. Yeah, and it's called Graveney now by estate agents. You know, it's either up the road or down the road when I was a kid, but it's, there's no there's no identifying feature. So becoming a Palace fan, that gave me an identity. Who are you? I'm a Palace fan. When people say to me now, oh, you're a Palace fan, I still get a huge, I really get a huge surge of pride. I love representing them, but I'm fully aware that I'm hopelessly, hopelessly old-fashioned and romantic about about football. As, as I said before, I'm passionate about history. I'm passionate about London. I'm a very proud Londoner. I know that I've got this old-fashioned notion about football because I love the idea that it's, it's one of the last bastions of working-class history. When I was growing up, I knew that saddles were made in Walsall because they were the saddlers. I knew that hats were made in Luton because they were the hatters. I get cross with people who go, if you like football, you, you that's it, you're ignorant, you know nothing about the world. I love theatre, I love art, I go to ballet, I love all sorts of things in my life. Yeah. But also I love football, I know about football, but I get equally cross with football fans who dismiss everything else, who say, opera, what's what? Shakespeare, fuck off. I can't stand that, it's not for the likes of us. You just go, no, I'll take you to a Shakespeare play and then we'll discuss it and you'll see that it's for It's funny on a quiz show, isn't it, when you see someone and they say, okay, the next subject is Shakespeare, and they pull a face as much as to say, why would I know about that? And yet the world is full of working-class people who have extraordinary depth in knowledge. That's one of the reasons I love the Porson's Arms and I love football fans, is because you meet this huge gamut of people. You meet people mainly from working-class back, but you meet lawyers, window cleaners, accountants, politicians. You meet all sorts of people united by their love of football. But I've still got this romantic notion that it's, it's kind of the last bastion of working class. In a, in a good way, I'm very aware that there are people listening to this who would have had terrible experiences in football grounds in the past or terrible experiences with football fans. Mm-hmm. But I've learned more from being a football fan. And not only that, but because I've been to Burnley to watch football and I've been to Sunderland to watch football, I know how fucked people are in this country. I know this country inside out through comedy and through travelling. To football, some of the finest times of my life at three o'clock in the morning on a train back from the away game where you've lost three nil. <laughs> Boxing Day in the Paulson's Arms when everyone's there, everyone's there. The whole place is just red and blue, and you, you're there with generations, with kids that you've grown up with, and through everything that's happened in my life, bad things, good things, it's always been the baseline. It's always been a refuge. I can always go there. When Ali was really ill, really ill. She used to tell me that, like, come one o'clock, and I'd be in the hospital. And come one o'clock on a Saturday, she'd go, just go, 
just go to football because you're no good to me. You'll just be sitting here all afternoon pacing up and down. To an extent that once there was one afternoon when she was it was an away game and a, a doctor about ten past five and we just won a really important round. This doctor came up to me and went, "It's it's good news." And I said, "Fucking tell me about it." One nil away to Hull. That's a fantastic result. <laughs> I know that football's changed. I know it's different, and I wouldn't go back to this. But it is such an important part of my life. So, how did you get those gloves? Well, it it turns out. Michael, and I'm slightly pulling the rug from under my feet. It, it turns out there's quite a few people who've got a sign uh. Julian's Peroni glove. It turns out Julian's Peroni, he came to us from Dundee, Argentinian goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. And in his first four matches, he made four errors that led to us losing. <laughs> but to his credit, he stayed on and he stayed on and he's in reserve. And he came back into the team in the championship and he was our goalkeeper for 10 years. And not only was he a brilliant guy, but he was just the nicest bloke you could ever meet. A lot of footballers are very wary of meeting fans because it's a job to them. You know, they worry that a fan will say, oh, what do you think about Palace in the FA Cup final night? And they don't know. No. Whereas Julian immersed himself in the, the club culture. He was one of these people who was always the last one to leave club events. He wouldn't say no to any photograph. We had this beer festival at Palace five years ago and it was, mum had been dead about three months. Mm. I said to Dad, come on, I'll take you, Dad. Come on, it'd be great. You Dad hasn't been to Sellers Park since it went up to a £5 to get in. That was it. <laughs> but I took him, and this is how delightful Julian is. We were on the pitch before, and I was doing some uh, media stuff, and I took my dad on the pitch, and Julian was in, and he gave me a big hug. And I said, Julian, this is my dad. And my dad went, oh, no. He said, oh, blimey. He said, you don't look big enough to be a goalkeeper, son. And then the next thing Julian said to my dad was, I'm very sorry to hear about your wife dying. And 45 minutes later, he was still on the pitch talking to my dad wow. about losing mum. And dad was like, he's South London working class. And most he said to me is, I, was, I, thought, I thought I'd be over it by now. Mm. You know, then my dad was crying and Julian was crying and everything. And then I was crying because my dad was finally talking about it. And then I just said, Julian, he said, I'm going to be in such trouble. So I've got to take my sister to the airport at two o'clock. She's flying back to Argentina. Four o'clock that afternoon, I bumped into him again. I said, what the fuck are you doing here? He couldn't leave because <laughs> no. people wanted to talk to him. No. What I remember about Julian Speroni, when I think of him, you always looked at him as if they'd gone, oh, shit, we haven't got a goalie. Um, hey, mate, can you, can you put a jersey on? <laughs> that's exactly what he's like. And that's, that was his demeanour as well, because mm. he's very into the environment. He's, he's a very committed Christian. If you wanted somebody to come to a charity do, you'd ask Julian because he'd always say yes always, whatever it was, to the extent that sometimes you had to check with him because he would you'd say yes to three things that were happening at the same time. And he used to turn up in the players' car park. It's one of my favourite rants when I did Match of the Day 2, which was the best job I've ever done probably when I was the roving reporter for Match of the Day 2. Mm. I was at the West Ham car park, the players' car park. I, was waiting, I can't remember which player it was we were waiting for to catch up with. It's proper old school West Ham, the car park attendant. It's about 75. <laughs> and as yet another Hummer turned up with a player getting out of it. He just went, and he just went, we can't fit them all. He's just said, we can't fit them all in the fucking car park. He said, I could have got three of Frank Lampard's cars in that space. He showed me where the white lines are that to be. He went, that's Bobby Moore's car. Look at that. Bobby Moore's car fitted into that. But Julian was so unlike a footballer. But he he gave me this, his, I can't remember what it was, but he, I just said, oh, Julian, mate, you know, I, I, I probably had a drink. And I just put my ass, no, you're so, I love you. And he gave me this glove, which I still, it turns out, of course, as I've since discovered, that I think it's probably about 5,000 people who've got a Julius Brown glove <laughs> in their living room. Because that's, but I just, well, that's to his credit. That's to his well, it is to credit. his credit, but it's just, I just wanted something to, 
I just wanted an excuse to talk about how important football is, really. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to put Julian Speroni's signed glove into the time capsule, and that'll be your third item. So, Kev, what's number four? Um, it's a flower. Well, it's a winter berry. I've hinted to you, I think, about how much. I love Christmas. I adore Christmas. Probably too much. <laughs> and it doesn't take an amateur psychologist. And I, I hope there are no children listening to this. But I was three when my dad told me there was no Father Christmas. Mm. He still says that I asked him. But my dad's logic was, well, I'm the one who's saving up to buy these. And I was always, I remember one year I asked for a, a, a train set and I got a cassette rack. I didn't have a cassette recorder, but I got a cassette rack. So <laughs> he wanted to take the credit. Basically, he bought me a dartboard one. I was six. And it's like, with hindsight, you're buying a six-year-old kid weapons. <laughs> so but anyway, by the age of seven, essentially, my dad gave me money two days before Christmas. I went down to the newsagent and I bought all the annuals. That was fine for me. I was happy then. Mm. But ever, ever since then, that, that's obviously put the idea into my head that and, and when Ed was born, literally the first thing my mum said to him was, if you ever say to Ed, there's no fire, I will, I will kill you, basically. <laughs> um, but I love, I adore Christmas, I love it. But I'm always disappointed afterwards because it never plays out the way it should. It never snows. There are never carol singers. Dinner's always nice, but it's, there's, not, there's not 14 of us sitting around the table Mm. being jolly and that you know it's like the queen's speech is always a letdown it's never as funny as you think it is it's always <laughs> the happiest day of the year for me. And I, i'm a winter person i love it when the clocks go back i tolerate summer i don't like summer very much i don't mind daylight but during the day it's like the idea of the fact that it's daylight at nine o'clock <laughs> genuinely it genuinely infuriates me and it's i, I genuinely think people who like sunshine are shallow but i don't get it i, I like i like <laughs> i like winter i'm much happier in winter but the best day of the year for me is the day before Christmas Eve because it's not quite Christmas yet, and I love, I love flowers. I love flower arranging, and it, it's taken me a long time to admit that out loud. And and it, it's it, if you'd said to me at the age of twenty one you you like flower arranging, I would have went, I would have probably pretended to hit you. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but when we got married, we had loads of flowers, and I just thought, well, I'll put the flowers in the in in some vases, and I, I really quite I quite enjoyed it, and then. And the reason, because I'm not, I can write. I'm not, there's no point in me being for I can write. I'm good with words. Mm. I like words. I'm good with words. But I have no artistic talent other than that at all. I can't draw. I can't sing. I can't, I can't do anything else. And I, I love colour. I've always wanted to have an artistic talent. And I've always wanted to work with colour. But suddenly I've, I've discovered that flowers were my way of working with colour. And I've spoken to professional flower rangers and right? I've read books and I know I'm doing stuff wrong, but I don't care because I love it. I love what I do. And as, at the moment, unfortunately, flowers is a luxury that we've had to forego during the current uh, financial... It's a very, very first world problem, but I miss it. But Christmas, the day before, because I fill the house with with flowers and and there's a particular one, there's a winterberry, but there's a flower called... I think it's pronounced Pieris. It's P-I-E-R-A-S. And it's a sort of drooping white thing. It's like little bells, but it sort of droops down. It's beautiful. But I love the 23rd. I put Healy Hutchinson's uh, Festival of Carols on very loud. And Christmas is around the corner. And I just, it takes me about two hours because I, I get all these different vases that I've got. And I just adore working with with putting flowers in vases I never plan anything beforehand. I would just go 
um, when the florist was slow, it was a brilliant florist. I was just right, I'll, I'll, I'll have loves, I'll have some of those. And the florist would go, Well, you know, you're buying even numbers, you can't have even numbers, it's got to be odd. Never mind that, I don't care, it's got to be odd numbers. And she's going, Well, don't they're too tall for you, you're not putting those two together. Never mind that, that's fine, just give me one of those, you know. And I just adore it. It's probably the happiest two hours of, of the year for me every year. It goes by the fireplace, it goes in the hall, and it's for nobody's benefit other than Ali and Ed's, really, and, and people mm. who come to us for Christmas when that's allowed to happen again. And I, I love it so much. It's the only, when people say to me after a gig, oh, that was brilliant. Or that, or that joke you said, I really love it. But when, when somebody comes in and says, Oh, I love your flowers. I'm just like, (laughs) and uh, two years ago, a younger friend of mine got married, a guy called JD, who is too nice for this world. He's the loveliest kid you can meet. I do a palace podcast. Your brother knows him. I do a palace podcast with him Mm -hmm. and he got married. And he said, look, would you, would you do the flowers? Oh, great. And I went, well, I, well, I will, but I'm, you better ask Miranda. Just don't spring it on her. Don't just go over and say, <laughs> oh, by the way, Kev's doing the flowers. But Miranda said, no, that'd be lovely. So that was my present to them. All I, the flowers are claret and blue. Did, well, they were, they were claret and blue flowers. And really <laughs> I blue knew flowers, it. But I, there was this tiny little chapel they got married in, this beautiful place out in the countryside. So I did the flowers in this little chapel and I spent weeks picking wildflowers. I, I was so happy. And when people said, when people were commenting, oh, weren't the flowers nice? I was like, so, so childishly pleased. But I just love the feel, but it's the colour more than anything. Mm. I love the texture of flowers. I love the feel of flowers. Sometimes to the extent I, I say sorry to them, if I, if I snip a bit off the bottom or pull a leaf or a petal off, I say, I'm really sorry about this. I'm, nature <laughs> has made you this wonderful specimen and I'm ruining it. But I just adore looking at that. But then, of course, there's that terrible, sad moment when you think, oh, they've got to go now. Mm. They're too long. But I love that at Christmas when you work with berries and it's just beautiful. And it's, it's just strange when I was casting, like I said, right at the start. It seems like a long time ago when I was casting around <laughs> right at the start, thinking about what I should put in. I just thought, I need... It's an odd thing to be important to me, but it is important. Mm. And it's and it's something that came completely out of the blue and it's something you would never expect. Yeah. But I just... I love colours. It slightly annoys, you know, I'm from a very Irish Republican family, so it slightly annoys and my favourite colour is probably orange. <laughs> I, I have to refer to it. It's like if, if some of them come there and say, is that, is that shirt orange? Go, no, no, it's fire red. Fire is, it's a deep, <laughs> it's a deep fire red. Yeah, but just putting colours together, is just brilliant. I love, I love doing it. And, I, and it's, it's just the fact that both Ali and Ed, it just makes them chuckle that I'm, you know, I like to think of myself as this South London geezer, you know, which mm. is so very far from the truth. But, and every now and again, I'll be out with Ali, we'll be walking, I'll go, oh, mate, I look at that, I've got to buy that, it'll be, that'll make a brilliant vase. And see, that's the other thing, I love, I love candles. Everybody's got a new age friend who puts everything down to a past life. And my friend, Luane, she says you must have been a monk in a previous life because <laughs> you like candles. So that's a, that's her way of explaining everything in life. I would imagine you were a person in a very dark room. Yeah, possibly rocking I mean, to and fro. I need some bloody <laughs> candles in my life. <laughs> and that's the other reason I don't like summer. It's like, for the love of God, please get dark so I can light a candle. But Ali will say there's a... Because she loves summer. Because she, she, as she says, I'm a normal person, so I love summer. Yeah. But Ali will say, you've got your, you've got your citronella candle. I say, that's keeping flies away. That's not a candle. That's a, <laughs> how we ever got them together, I don't know. It's, it's astonishing. Uh, opposites attract. 
Yeah, well, yeah. My last item refers to her, actually. Well, okay. It? What should I put? Pyrrhus? Is that the flower you want? Yeah, Pyrrhus. I think that's how you pronounce okay. it, yes. We've put those into a lovely vase for you. Thank you. I'll just put them in there in a bit of a mess. So if you ever come across this thing, you can arrange them yourself. Yeah, I'm not above doing that in, in <laughs> other people's houses. Just as I leave, I'll just, I'll just... That's always a parting gesture. Just say, hang on a second, I'm just going to go to loo and I nip into their front room and just move the... <laughs> I'm not proud of myself. No, thank God you don't love decorating. I'm not good at it. All right, Kev, so we'll move on to your final item. It's an odd one. It's a small bucket of chicken. Like KFC? It wasn't even KFC. It was a local... It was, it was like Tennessee fried chicken or... Uh, or right. But I've asked Ali if it's all right to talk about this, but you'll probably know through working with Ali that she was very ill for a, for a time, mm-hmm. 2013, 2015. She came back from Edinburgh. She lost a lot of weight. She wasn't looking particularly well. She had no energy... She was meant to have some blood tests before she went to her and put them off. She went to her, our local surgery for blood tests and she got a phone call that afternoon saying there's, there might be something wrong with our equipment, but we need, there's one of these results is, is just really, really wrong. So I've, we need you to go to St. Thomas's. That's okay, mm. just to, to double check. And we've got a phone call from St. Thomas's who said, you better pack because you might be staying the night. It's like, this is really odd. Mm. This can't be right. So, but lo and behold, she went to St. Thomas's, had the blood test, and she stayed in it. And we didn't, we didn't know what it was, but it was quite clearly the way we were being talked to in hushed tones and whatever. And it took them at first, they thought it might be lung cancer, and then it wasn't. But it turned out to be Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm. And the prognosis was all right, but it wasn't brilliant. But then before chemotherapy started, it turned out she had also, the Hodgkin's was driving this thing called amyloid, which is a horrible, horrible disease, which, they said, look, there's every chance we this is not dealable with. So it was a, it was a terrible sense. So that, that sort of three so but as Ali was being diagnosed, we were moving house. And I said, Well, we can't, we can't. And Ali said, No, let's go. It was fine. We might be fine. We'll move house. So we'd moved the house that we raised, a house that I was really happy in for 15 years. And I'd I didn't I saw the logic of us moving and downsizing a little bit because it, it meant we would have a little bit of money but we're all freelancers so we'd have a mm-hmm. little bit of money behind us but I loved the house I was that we were first in we were in a flat and we were, I loved that house and it was full of memories and we'd raised Ed there and it's like and we weren't moving far and I'd I'd taken against the new house already the first week we moved in like within three days Ellie was in hospital we'd been in the house three weeks and it's like finally realizing that things weren't Potentially were brilliant. Mm. Um, uh, and I, uh, sorry, Michael, I came home from the hospital one night. For, she was being shuttled between St. Thomas's. I came home from uh, Thomas's one night and I was on the train and I kind of half realised I was drinking a bottle of wine from the bottle, basically. I don't recall buying it. I just, to be honest, friends of mine listening to this will say, that's not entirely unique experience. You <laughs> have done that before. But, you know, it's like... And I got home about quarter past 11 and I realised I hadn't eaten. So I bought this bucket of Tennessee fried chicken or whatever it was. It wasn't even a bucket, it was a tub. That's how low rent it was. It was a tub <laughs> of, of chicken. And I went into this and Ed was staying with a mate. And and I realised this is, but, but the cat was with us. And the cat was 21 years old and she was, we knew that the cat wasn't long for this world. And I adored that cat. I absolutely adored that cat. And she she was semi feral, but she loved me. I, I could wear her like a I adored that cat. So I came into the house, and this poor frail cat was looking at me like, "Please release me." And I'm going, and then I'm in a house still full of boxes I didn't like. 
Ed wasn't there. My beloved cat was, was almost couldn't pick her up because she was so frail. Ali was didn't know what was happening. And I put the telly on, and I love I love MasterChef Australia. <laughs> so I had a couple of MasterChef Australia tapes, and I half-heartedly ate the chicken. And I thought I need another glass of wine. In the midst of all this fear and anxiety, and I was watching uh, Chef on MasterChef Australia cook this most amazing, elaborate dish, and I realised that I'd poured my wine instead of into the glass. I poured it into the bucket of chicken <laughs> that I'd finished. And I just thought, oh, fuck it. So I drank it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, so I, I drank salty, nice, quite decent white wine out of a bucket of fried chicken while I was watching this brilliant meal being cooked. And I just started laughing. <laughs> it's just, I couldn't, I just thought, because that was one of the brilliant things about Ali's care team, and I did a whole Edinburgh show on it, was they were brilliant. They understood that humour was my only coping mechanism. And that they understood that where Ali saw team meeting, nurses, doctors, I saw audience. They understood that. They were brilliant and they dealt with that really well. And they would, you know, I would say, there was one stage when they said, the doctor said, we're, we're put, trying to run this new treatment. There's a lot of things it might cause. And he was, a, he was quite shy, this doctor. He was a, an elderly Asian man. And he, and he said, one of the things was it might cause vaginal dryness. And I actually said, I don't think so, do you, <laughs> living with this? <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and, of course, Ali's just going, for God's sake. And the nurses are alone. And I said, look, if you want, you can walk me around the ward. I'll help the other ladies. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> but Ali, Ali understood that. And just in this moment of uh, despair is the only word you can use for it. I'm, I'm sitting in this house I didn't like, looking at my cat, watching this beautiful meal on TV, drinking a really nice glass of Viognier, out of a tub of chicken that still had bits of chicken in it. <laughs> it's one of those things where you think you read in books about somebody says, oh, the only thing you can do is laugh. And it's like, it's the first time in my life where I thought it's the only appropriate response. Mm. And then that tub of chicken became a symbol for everything. And then Ali is now well and hearty because of our wonderful, wonderful, brilliant NHS. Mm. My mum fell ill, unfortunately, then died not long afterwards. The cat had to be put down like two months later. and that was the the hardest thing I've ever done I couldn't do it in the end and I, I know it's transference of course it's all my feelings about my mum and about Ali and about all sorts of things the things that you can't talk to people about it was all went into the cat I couldn't talk for three days after the cat went and I know it was about but that everything's fine now to you know mum's not here so that's not fine but for the most part everything's fine and it's going to be fine but that I still every now and again close my eyes and think of that that tub of chicken. And and every now and again during the pandemic when things have, haven't looked particularly good work-wise or money-wise, I just console myself. Well, you know, think of that Thursday tub of chicken. Yeah. And you kind of go, oh, yeah, things have been worse. Yeah, and yeah. It's, and, it, and again, it comes right back to what I said at the start. I, I still think that things will be better as well, which is why when people say, what's been the happiest time of your life? I will say, I've had some brilliant happy times, but I'm hoping that the happiest is still to come. Sorry for getting a bit emotional on your... uh... Uh, It's fine. I completely understand it. And uh, it's a really interesting way to approach that question. What is something that you'd like to get rid of from your life? In a way, what you're doing is you're taking it not as a thing to banish, but actually putting it in there as a reminder of the worst time, of, of, of a low... And to say, well, okay, well, there it is. 
it's it's always there to remind me. And so I should appreciate what I've got now. I've never fully been able to articulate this, something that I really believe, which is the bad memories are as part of you as the good memories. It's about putting them away, basically. I'm always wary of this idea of totally getting rid of any bad memories because I kind of think that's, I'm not entirely sure, I'm not entirely sure why I think this, but I'm not entirely sure that's a good idea. I think you should store them, by all means tidy them up, put them away somewhere. But I think every now and again, you have to bring them out as well, as well as the good memories. It's like, you know, when I talk about football, I have to remind myself that at times in the 70s, it was a dreadful thing. You have to balance both things. It's like sometimes I get a vase of flowers wrong. And it infuriates me. Mm. It's like as a performer, you have to remember the, the and there's any comedian who says they never died in their ass is lying. Mm-hmm. It's just not true. And that's where the arrogance and the ego comes in because for the first two years of any comic's life, they're, they're shit. Yeah, they still think they're good enough to go up on stage. So every club, there's no... I also don't think there's any point denying that the bad gigs happened, that the terrible gigs happened. I'm not going to say, no, it never happened. It's the same as me getting older. I'm astonished by the fact I'm about to be 60. Literally, (laughs) it seems surreal. I can't believe something seems to be wrong somewhere, but there's no point me saying, I wish it was still 1991, Mm. because that would be grotesque. And also, if I was 10 years younger, 20 years younger, I wouldn't have met Ali. I wouldn't be married to the woman I love. I wouldn't have my brilliant son. I wouldn't have my career. So you just have to accept it. You just have to go, right, well, here it is. I'll deal with it. We'll move on. People seem to be enjoying themselves. I'll wake up on the morning of my 60th birthday. I'll probably still feel slightly horny. I'll still (laughs) feel like I want to listen to music. And I'll think, why did I waste three months worrying about it in the first place? I can't go back and change the gig. I can't go back and make Ali better all i can do is rejoice in the fact that she is well and hale and hearty mm-hmm. and every now and again remember that tub of chicken and go please god that never has to happen again brilliant absolutely well thank you kevin thank you very much you're welcome michael thank you for asking yeah, i've really enjoyed it and i'm sorry you had to spend so much time listening <laughs> no it makes my job really easy it was great kevin that's absolutely fantastic i really really enjoyed it thanks man You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, the man in the stunning shirt, Kevin Day. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can, like all podcasts, subscribe to it on Acast or the podcast provider of your choice. If you do, then please leave a review if you can, and certainly do rate the show. Thanks. You can follow My Time Capsule on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook for news of what's coming up and you can listen to the theme tune, as David Williams used to say, on Spotify. It was written by Pastor P's Music, who wrote the theme tune and played the theme tune but didn't sing the theme tune, as there are no lyrics. OK, My Time Capsule was produced by John Fenton Stevens and is a cast-off production for Acast. And that's it. We've got lots more episodes for you to listen to if you fancy it. I hope you do, because every listen helps to keep us in the lavish lifestyle to which we've become accustomed. I mean, I bought a new paddling pool for the grandkids the other day. <laughs> 9.99, And all from the royalties from this very episode. Plus a small loan from NatWest. Yep, a great day. One which I shall forever call Kevin Day. Sorry, bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.